have an invitation to give, I, I think it would be tremendous if uh, if the whole Toshavim entered the, the worship service in mass and sang about widows for the congregation. Would you be willing to do that some Sunday morning? I just think that would be done. Uh, and then you got to put together some of those, and we'll put them all in the pews, and we'll start singing those in church, too. Ooh, that's good. I really envy you to uh, be able to sing those in Sunday morning. So I'm, uh, I'm planning to preach two sermons that will be based on what happens up here, February 8th and 15th, Sex and the Single Person and Sexual Relations in Marriage. And uh, that might be a good Sunday or two for Toshavim to come in. So, I hope you can teach me a few things so I'll know what to say come February 8th. Tonight, here's the order I think we want to do. We're going to have about three sessions together. And uh, tonight, I think we'll stick mainly to the general topic of Christian hedonism and what that is and what I am as a Christian hedonist. Then, we'll make a turn at the end of this hour and, and tomorrow morning, over to the question, why did God create sexual desire? And then we'll move through that to the question, can or should Toshavim, that is, sojourners on the earth, seek to satisfy that desire? And then the last two questions we'll ask is, are uh, what is sanctified sex? before marriage, and what is sanctified sex after marriage or in marriage. But tonight, it won't be focusing on sexual desire directly, but rather on the theological foundations for how I go about making all my moral decisions, namely Christian hedonism. And and I've got two papers that I wrote on this. Some of you, I suppose, have heard one of these anyway, and perhaps read the other one. I'm going to present one how I became a Christian hedonist, then pause and uh, pose a question or two to you, and then if we have time after those questions, go ahead and present some of the other one. Sometimes I break down hedonism into vertical hedonism, that is, hedonism governing our relationship between us and God, and then horizontal hedonism, the one uh, governing our relationship between each other. But how I became a Christian hedonist. When I was in college... I had this vague, pervasive notion that the goodness of my moral action was lessened to the degree that I was motivated out of a desire for my own pleasure or happiness. Being motivated by a desire for pleasure, when I bought an ice cream cone in the student center, didn't bother me because that didn't seem to be a moral action. But to be motivated by a desire for pleasure when I volunteered for Christian service at Wheaton or went to church, that seemed selfish utilitarian. And this was a problem for me because I couldn't formulate an alternative motive that worked. I found in me this overwhelming longing to be happy, this tremendously powerful impulse to seek pleasure, and yet at every moral decision that I had to make, I had to make myself uh, say that this should have no influence. Bracket, that massive desire in my heart and not let it have any power. And that was frustrating. 
One of the most frustrating areas was that of worship and praise. My vague notion that the higher the activity, the less there must be of self-interest in it caused me to think of worship solely in terms of duty, and that, I think, now tends to cut the heart out of it. Then in the fall of 1868, that was the year I graduated from college, went off to seminary at Fuller, uh, I was converted to Christian hedonism. In a matter of weeks, I came to see that it is unbiblical and arrogant to try to worship God for any other reason than the pleasure that is to be had in Him. Let me describe the series of insights now that made me into a Christian hedonist about five. Along the way, it will become clear, I think, what I mean by that phrase, Christian hedonism. My first quarter in seminary, I was introduced to the argument for Christian hedonism, and one of the great exponents, Blaise Pascal, in his 250th Pensee, he said, All men seek happiness, without exception. They all aim at this goal, however different the means they use to attain it. What makes those go to war, those buy it at home, is this same desire which both classes cherish, though the point of view varies. The will never makes the smallest move, but with this as its goal. It is the motive of all the actions of all men, even those who contemplate suicide. End quote. This so fit with my own deep longings and all that I'd ever seen in others that I accepted it, and I've never seen any reason to doubt it to this day. And what struck me as especially Striking here was that Pascal was not making any moral judgment at all about that fact. He's just stating it. So, as far as he was concerned, seeking one's own happiness was not a sin. It was a simple given in human nature. It's a law of the human heart, like gravity is the law of nature. This made great sense to me and opened a way for the second discovery. I had grown to love the work of C.S. Lewis in college. Not until the fall of 1968 did I buy the little volume of sermons called The Weight of Glory, and the lead sermon in there is called The Weight of Glory. The first page of this sermon is one of the most influential pages of literature that I've ever read, and it goes like this. If you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of virtues, 19 of them would reply unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive, and this is of more than philological importance. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion, not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them, ourselves, as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think this is Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, Lewis goes on, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ, and nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, 
I submit that this notion has crept in from Immanuel Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased, end quote. There it was in black and white, and to my mind it was totally compelling. It is not a bad thing to desire our own good. In fact, the great problem of the human being is that he is far too easily pleased. He is not nearly selfish enough. He doesn't seek pleasure with near the resolve and passion that he should, and thus he settles for mud pies of appetite instead of infinite delight. I had never in my whole life heard any Christian, let alone a Christian of Lewis stature, say that we all not only, as Pascal said, do, but also ought to seek our own happiness. Man's guilt lies not in the intensity of his desire for happiness, but in the weakness of that desire. Third, the third insight was there in Lewis's sermon, but Pascal made it even more explicit. He says later in the 250th Pensee, there was formerly in man a true happiness of which there remains to him now only a mark, a trace, holy void, which he vainly tries to fill with all that surrounds him, seeking from things absent the succor which he cannot obtain from things present, but which are incapable of it, because this infinite abyss cannot be filled but by an infinite and immutable object, that is, by God himself. As I look back on it now, it seems so patently obvious. I don't know how I could have missed it. All those years I had been trying to suppress my tremendous longing for happiness so that I could honestly praise God out of some higher, less selfish motive. But now it started to dawn that this persistent and undeniable yearning for happiness was not to be suppressed, but glutted. On God, the growing conviction that praise should be motivated solely by the happiness we find in God seemed less and less strange. Four, the next insight came again from C.S. Lewis, but this time from his book called Reflections on the Psalms. Chapter 9 of this book bears the modest title, A Word About Praise. In my experience, it has been the word about praise. The best word on the nature of praise I've ever read. Lewis says that as he was beginning to believe in God, a great stumbling block was the presence of demands scattered through the Psalms that he should praise God. He did not see the point in all this. Besides, it seemed to picture God craving for our worship like a vain woman wanting compliments. But he goes on to show why he was wrong. This is what he says. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of 
compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows in praise. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what we indeed can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation, end quote. Now that was the capstone of my emerging hedonism. Praising God, the highest calling of man, and our eternal occupation did not involve the renunciation, but rather the consummation of the joy that I so desired. My old effort to achieve worship with no self-interest in it proved to be a contradiction in terms. Worship is basically adoration, and we adore only what delights us. There is no such thing as sad adoration or unhappy praise. We have a name for those who try to praise when they have no pleasure in the object. We call them what? Hypocrites. This fact that praise means consummate pleasure and that the highest end of man is to drink deep of this pleasure was perhaps the most liberating discovery that I ever made. Then I turned to the Psalms for myself and found the language of hedonism everywhere. The quest for pleasure was not even optional. It was demanded. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It was a command. The psalmist sought to do just this. As a deer pants after the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, a living God. Psalm 42. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for thee in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 63. The motif of thirsting has its satisfying counterpart in Psalm 36, 8, where the psalmist says that men drink their fill of the abundance of thy house, and thou dost give them to drink of the river of thy delights. I found that the goodness of God, the very foundation of worship, is not a thing you pay your respects to out of some kind of disinterested reverence. No, it is something to be tasted. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34. How sweet are thy words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 119, 103. As C.S. Lewis says in the Psalms, God is the all-satisfying object. His people adore him unashamedly for the exceeding joy they find in him. Psalm 43, verse 4. He is the source of complete and unending pleasure, according to Psalm 1611. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. So fullness and unending. What more can one ask for? That, then, is the short story of my pilgrimage to Christian hedonism. And I said earlier that I think it is unbiblical and arrogant to try to worship God for any other reason than the pleasure that is to be had in him. 
Now let me add just three comments to make sure there's no misunderstanding. First, Christian hedonism, as I use it, does not mean that God becomes a means to help us get worldly pleasure. It does not mean that God becomes a means to help us get worldly pleasure. The pleasure that the Christian hedonist seeks is the pleasure which is in God himself. He is the end of our search. Not the means to some further end. Our exceeding joy is he. Not the streets of gold, or the reunion with relatives, or any other blessing of heaven, or anything God can give. Christian hedonism does not reduce God to a key that unlocks a treasure chest of gold and silver. Rather, it transforms the heart so that, to quote Job, the Almighty will be your gold and choice silver to you. Second qualification. Christian hedonism does not make a God out of pleasure. It says that one has already made a God out of whatever he finds most pleasure in. Christian hedonism does not make a God out of pleasure. It simply believes that we have already made a God out of whatever we find most pleasure in. The goal of Christian hedonism is to find most pleasure in the one and the only God and thus avoid the sin of covetousness, that is, desiring anything else wrongly. Covetousness is called idolatry in Colossians 3.5. And finally, third qualification, Christian hedonism does not put us above God when we seek him out of self-interest. It is precisely the con confessing our frustrated, hopeless condition without him that we honor him. A patient is not greater than his doctor because he longs to be made well by the doctor. A child is not greater than his father when he wants the fun of playing with his father. On the contrary, the one who sets himself above God is the person who presumes to come to God in order to give rather than to get. With a pretense of self-denial, he sets himself up as the benefactor of God as if the world and all that it contains were not already God's. No, the hedonistic approach to God is the only humble approach because it is the only approach which comes with totally empty hands. Christian hedonism pays God the respect of acknowledging that he and he alone can satisfy the longings of the human heart to be happy, to approach God in any other way for any other reason, I think is unbiblical and arrogant. Now that's the end of the first uh, essay on how I became a Christian hedonist. And I'd like to pause here before we talk any more about how it governs Christian ethics so that you can ask questions if they came to your mind. Did you want to ask a question before I ask you one? Question great. What about Lewis suggested that it comes from Immanuel Kant. Kant's categorical imperative is that uh, virtue rises in direct proportion to disinterestedness. That is, you have to be 
doing what you're doing solely for the sake of duty and not for any benefit or pleasure that returns to you if you're to be if you to have a moral benefit. Now, huh, well, people who aren't philosophically oriented would say it simply comes from the Bible. Jesus said, deny yourself. Take a free cross and follow me. That's what he said. Deny yourself. Well, how does that fit in? Can you, can you worship? Can you deny yourself to worship? And worship authentically? What did you mean? No, maybe about it. I think that's what he means. Right. Deny all those crazy, confused, world-dictated notions of where happiness comes from, and let me show you where it's found. If you just go ahead and read the rest of the passage, the reason he says you should deny yourself and take up your cross is because those who try to save their lives lose them. You don't want to lose your life. You want to find it. You're a hedonist. You're all hedonists. Peter, James, John, the twelve, everybody here. Come on now. Act like a hedonist. Do not seek to save your life. Give it up. Because then you'll find it. And you all want to find life. The whole argument for, for self-denial is hedonistic. Let me read you a quote from St. Augustine. If you love your soul, there is danger of its being destroyed. Therefore, you may not love it, since you do not want to be destroyed. But in not wanting it to be destroyed, you love it. You cannot get away from the hedonistic implications of, of that text, which is probably the one that people think of most in reaction against what I've just said. Take up your cross and deny yourself. Lose your life. But Jesus' whole argument there is to get us to quit groveling around with drink and drug and illicit sex like little kids who are having a great time with mud pies in the slums because they can't imagine what a, a, a day at the sea is like with God. Uh, now, I, I think we are all everybody Everybody can do this whether they want to be or not. We're just not all self-conscious practicing. We don't work at it. Everybody, if Pascal is right, everybody seeks happiness. And that's what I mean, first of all, by hedonist. A person who is after happiness. Now, it, my definition, when I call myself a Christian hedonist, though, I mean a, a Christian hedonist is a person who believes that it is right to make your own happiness the motive for everything you do. That's, that just doesn't sit well with most people in the church. So everybody's a hedonist in the sense that everybody's seeking to be happy, so you don't have to be, become one. You are one, and Jesus just assumed it when he taught. It, but I'm trying to convert people to conscious Christian hedonism in the sense that we believe it's right to aim at happiness in worship and in ethics and in everything else we do. And then, then we're in a lifelong process of conforming our hearts to Christ so that we are made happy by the things that are truly good and beautiful. Made me a lot happier. A lot happier because I wasn't so afraid of being happy. I wasn't so it also it also uh, it gave me a new uh, zeal for worship. I I couldn't make sense out of worship before. It was a great confusion to me 
because I was trying to live with a contradiction, namely, worship God and yet don't do it because you enjoy it. it that, that just cuts the throat of worship. You cannot do it. You'll contradict yourself. It's an emotional impossibility. And so I really never knew what worship was until uh, 68. I grew up in a church and singing hymns and so on. Never, uh, well maybe I don't remember well enough. I no doubt had moments of, of real worship when, when the truth really got a hold on me, whether I was conscious of it or not. But as a conscious, self-reflective person in college, church was always a puzzle. It was a puzzle, emotional puzzle to me. And therefore, I was freed up greatly when I discovered that I ought to walk into this building on Sunday morning and glut myself on God and, and enjoy Him to the hill. And if I failed to do it, I wasn't really worshiping. So I had both freedom and a new, and a new goal to aim at because my heart doesn't always incline to worship like it should. I, uh, I'll, I'll, let me answer this question. Let me ask this question. If somebody stood up here and said, Worship is for God, not for man. For God's sake, for God's glory, for God's pleasure. You do that?
Let me, let me take that statement I just made and, and say what I think of it. That statement was made by Bruce Leaflett, teaches worship. Worship is for God, not for man. For his sake, for his glory, for his pleasure. And he said when out at Lake Avenue, uh, where I was ordained, where I learned to worship, where he was the music minister for ten years, the morning service was for God, the evening service was for the body. Bruce Lee, a professor of worship and music at the college and the seminary. So I went up to him yesterday after the seminar, Founders Week, and I said, oh, here's another statement. How many in here are in a class with Bruce right now? Or were? Or were? On to, oh, I thought it was more. Well, you, we, we've talked this out, so I don't think it, uh, I'm going to talk to him again on my so I, I can tell you what I said. He said in a seminar this week, worship is the most unselfish act that you can perform. <laughs> so I, I asked him how he could say that yesterday. And the fundamental problem, it seems to me, he, he, he lectures on worship all over this country. Anybody's supposed to understand worship. Bruce Leaflet is supposed to understand worship. He's written articles on it. He's an expert. And oh, when, when I just you know, go like that with an expert, I get concerned. There's be somebody teaching at the college and seminary and a good friend. Um, I asked Bruce, when you say worship is for God, that is for his glory and for his pleasure, you have to ask the next question, how do you give God pleasure? If I'm willing to say, worship is for God, it is for his glory, it is for his pleasure. But then, that doesn't help us any until we ask the next question, how do you give the all-sufficient, almighty God pleasure? And I get my answer from Hebrews 11, verse 6, which says, without faith, it is impossible to give God pleasure. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to give God pleasure. For he who comes to God, worship or prayer, must believe two things. That he is, you can't please him if you don't think he's there, and that he rewards those who seek. So, Bruce, on Sunday morning, if I make it my aim to please God, I must make it my aim to seek Him as rewarder. If I don't seek Him as rewarder of my need and my vacuous heart and my hunger for happiness, He won't be pleased. And it's all vain talk to talk, to, to, to constantly talk about giving to God. Bruce wants to understand worship Holy in terms of giving. We, in worship, we give up to God because of what he has given to us. And, and there's truth in that, but it, it, it's uh, got to be distinguished. You've got to distinguish kinds of giving, don't you? 
because uh, Paul said in his sermon in Acts 20, in Acts 17, that God uh, doesn't have any needs. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. Therefore, you can't give God anything except thanks. Psalm 50. If I wanted anything from you, I wouldn't, if I wanted anything, I wouldn't ask you. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. Here's what I want from you. I want the sacrifice of thanksgiving. I want you to pay your vows to the Most High. And I want you to call upon me in the day of trouble and I will answer. We will make God happy if we call upon him in the day of trouble for his joy. So that I, I cannot define worship primarily in terms of giving. Unless I limit it very, very much. Then the next one, question would be, how do you, how do you glorify God? If, if you please God by going to him as benefactor, as rewarder, how do you glorify him? I told Bruce, I said, there is nothing that honors my wife more than when I tell people that the reason I like to be around her is because she brings me so much love. Pure hedonism, but the greatest compliment that I can pay her. The greatest way to glorify Noel is to tell other people I like to be around her because she makes me happy. What else could I say that would give her more honor? I like to be around her out of duty. <laughs> or, um, would it? I like to be around her because I like to give her the benefit of my presence. <laughs> the only thing that is going to honor Noel is to just own up to the fact that I'm a taker. And she is an all... Oh, that's what God is. She, she is a very satisfying giver. Now, it, makes, it just makes so much sense to me. And yet we balk at it. I don't think I'll ever persuade Bruce to talk this way. I'm going to try. Any other questions now you want to raise? When did we start, Tom? Well, well, I should ask, when are we going to finish? I know. Okay. Now, anybody want to ask another? Yes. Well, I think, I want to you, how you think Yes, 
Well, you don't have to. Yeah, you don't need to worry about that because because the the more you enjoy worship, the more you enjoy God, the more He will enjoy you. Because the thing that He enjoys in His creatures is that they delight in Him. He commanded us, delight yourself in the Lord. Now He wouldn't have done that if He didn't like that. It's not ulterior at all. You, you get want, out on the table. You want the Lord to delight you, so you delight yourself. I mean, how else? How else? Paul says, "I make it my aim to please the Lord, whether alive or dead." Okay, we all ought to be making it our aim to please the Lord. Now, how how do you make it your aim to please the Lord? There's no no ulterior motive. He said, "Do it. Please me. Please me." stories in Matthew 6. One guy toots his horn before he, he makes his giving, and, and uh, Jesus says, he's got his reward, namely the applause of the people. And the other person stands on the corner praying loud, and, and uh, people cry, oh, piety, piety. And he gets his reward. <laughs> somebody else somebody else fasts and you know, contorts his face and shows that he's hungry, and people say, look, well, he's willing to give up. And Jesus says, look, he's got his reward. But you... You, you could get another kind of reward if you would wash your face and let anybody know you're fasting, go in your closet when you pray, and don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing when you give alms, then your Father in heaven will reward you. Notice, paltry applause. Go for broke. <laughs> See? But I mean, if I'm jumping over the town happy about something, people are going to know it. I'm so happy about it. That's a really interesting question. That's a very good question. How, and it's raised in the Sermon on the Mount itself. You see, in chapter 5, Jesus said, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. And in chapter 6, he says, Do it quietly, so nobody can see you. Now, how do we work that out? I don't think it's hard to work out. But in chapter 6, he, had, he, he has in mind religious religious uh, practices, almsgiving, praying, and giving money. All of which we ought not to be patients about. You ought not tell people how much money you put in the place. You ought not to tell people how many hours you spend in prayer. You ought not contort yourself when you're fasting. But, you ought to change the tire of your friend on the road, whether 10,000 people see you do it or not. You ought to take soup to the widow and go visit the prisoners, whether people see you or not. See, I don't think Jesus is inconsistent. And you ought to delight in it. And people will see, hey, look how much, look. You'll do it just like the people in Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, and you will not be able to keep a secret. Listen to this. You Christians had compassion on the prisoners, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had Better possession and an abiding one. You're absolutely right. We ought to delight in doing the world system, namely God. Therefore, they give glory to your Father in heaven. That's the negative side of it. We're not overbound by joy. 
You don't have an ability to worship him. I don't think. Um, now, let me qualify that because you said an overabounding joy. There are all kinds of degrees of happiness. If you do not feel any delight in God, all you can do is go through the motions. You can sing the hymn. You can bow your head. You can raise your hands. But is that worship? If it's not coming from the heart? That's another question. That's a good one. Leif Blad said, very helpfully to me, he, he listed five reasons, five purposes for music in worship. And I, can't, I can't remember all of them, but one of them was to give expression to our heartfelt love to God. Another one was to inspire heartfelt love for God. Another one was to channel or direct. But it's the second one I'm interested in. We have music in worship, and, and, and here at the beginning, for two reasons. Some of you are already with God, and you want to sing. Others of you aren't yet there, and the music might get you there. So, in answer to your question, depending on your motive, yes. If your motive is to, if your motive to, when you don't feel like worshiping, you can have two possible motives for going ahead and going through the motions. One is, is deceit. You don't want anybody to know that you don't feel this way. It's not good to come to church and not feel like worshiping. So you go through the motions. Bad motive. Better just stay home or just sit there. There's another motive, though. In your heart, there's still that spark. I wish I felt. I wish I felt. Well, maybe if I sing, he'll pour it into me. Maybe if I pray, he'll pour it into me. That's a different motive. That's a good, honest motive. You're not being a hypocrite when you do that, even though some people may misread you. So the answer, I think, is yes. You, you should go ahead and try if that's your motive. Mm-hmm. There is enough desire to want to worship, and that desire is real. It honors that desire. (laughs) And beauty. No, I don't think I can without just using other words that you would ask me to define too. Ultimately, all definition goes back to pointing, doesn't it? All definitions are putting one word into other words, which have to then be put into other words, which have to then be put into other words, and there will be no communication unless ultimately we can point. Now, if you've never been pregnant, then there will be 
realities which can o- you can only guess at. And morning sickness, maybe, or something like that. Or, or what's it like to have this big weight, you know, pulling your back out like this all the time. And, or what it's like at night to lay down and feel the baby kind of this way, <laughs> kick you in the spine, and kick your husband in the back. A whole lot of, a lot of things that you can uh, use analogies to get at. But ultimately, you have to wait and say, you'll know. You'll know what I mean. Or a person who's never had a headache. Define headache. Well, like the stomach can hit. Or something like that. But that's no good. That's no good. You have to have experienced it in order to know the word. So all I can do is say, happiness, you remember when you were a kid? Christmas morning? You know, you open presents in the morning or not? We always open presents in the morning. Happiness was the night before stringing the popcorn on the bread and hanging it up and watching the parents whisper in the corner. What are they doing? <laughs> you know what that is. Or happiness is falling in love, and that heartbeat that starts to pitter patter in the clammy hands, and just love to be with that person. Everybody knows what happiness is delight, joy, sunset for the artist. Artistic people tend to have more sensitivity than others for. For that kind of aesthetic pleasure, uh, for some people it would be sports. You know, 30, I just heard on the radio some fantastic last-second 30-foot jump shot yesterday. I don't know who it was. Some freshman popped that thing through there. Oh, man. You know, the, the people just rise up all over the place here, and you say, that is joy. That happens. And you just keep on making it this longer and longer. I don't think I could do any better than just pointing at experiences of happiness. Well, that, I, I think you're probably right. I would say that for myself. I don't know if I'd say kind of joy. There may be. I'm open to that. I would say vistas, depths, breaths of joy. I know I have one. I think. Uh, simply because God is infinite. And his beauty is infinite, and his goodness is infinite, and I, what I've experienced of God, could nowhere near be acquainted with what's possible to be experienced of God. And so, there are, there are oceans of joy to be drunk in, and I'm just going to take a little sip. So yes, uh, I wouldn't worry too hard about defining kinds of joy, just uh Let's all admit that there is an ocean of joy to be swum in, and we're, we're getting the soles of our feet wet on the edge of the sea right now. And so let's keep... The, my heart pants. My heart pants. I thirst as for a, a, a what in the dry land? The psalmist, he, he seemed to always see something over the horizon. He couldn't get his hands quite a hold up. But then, now and then, I waited for the Lord, and he answered. Put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Sometimes he drank deep. Okay, that's horizontal hedonism, and just turning to it. Uh, does hedonism, that is, does the desire for joy, also motivate us in our interpersonal relations? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not hard to see how that is hedonistic. 
Uh, it isn't as easy for some people to see how love your neighbor as yourself becomes hedonistic. I think it is. That question usually comes up at the end uh, after I've made a big case for the fact that we ought to do good for each other because of the joy that it brings. So, but we'll skip over to the end. Your question is, uh, should you go ahead and do good for people even if it doesn't seem to hold out the prospect of much pleasure? You don't feel much like it. And I have answered the same way I answered Dennis' question. Um, there, there are good reasons and bad reasons for doing what you don't feel like doing. Um, one is one is Pharisaic and hypocritical. The, the, the rich people who dumped all their money in probably so that it would clap them real loud. The benefit still accrued to the to the temple, but they they wrecked the moral value of that because the motive they had. They did not do it cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. Um, suppose you come then on a Sunday morning and you have this pocket full of money, and you haven't tithed, and uh, you hear the call to tithe. And you don't feel like tithing because you had planned to use that money to buy something that would bring you lots of pleasure. Now, what do you do? Um, I think the first thing you do is repent that you don't want to. Just get it out on the table with God. I'm sorry that my heart is so hard, God, and that my desires do not get all excited about what's pleasing to you. And the second thing you do is ask God to change your affection. Fill me with a desire to tie, with a love to give. I want to be a cheerful giver. Now, between two and three, he might change you. And instantly, he might fill you with that desire. More than likely, it won't happen instantaneously. And so you're confronted with the third. Namely, if, if deep down you want to do what's right, then say to God, Lord, I'm going to give it, even though I don't feel 100% behind the giving, and I trust that you'll take it for the desire there is there, and that you'll go ahead and work on it. Use the actual giving to make me a better giver and a more joyful one in giving. So the answer is yes to your question. Go ahead and help the person anyway. Oh, that's, that's common experience. Driving down the road, and you're on your way somewhere, and here's this stranded person on the side of the road. Very few of us are so sanctified that we say, Great! An opportunity to do good. I am am so glad that she is granted right where I was. More than likely, we do this with one and a half second battle in our mind. I'm going to feel guilty all day. Pull over and uh, move in there and then we have to repent and Right, or change. And you know what often makes the difference whether we feel like it or not? Is whether we're happy or not. We're already happy in God. And He's meeting all our needs. And we're secure in His promise. And not worrying about the rest of the afternoon. Resting in Him. And an opportunity for doing good comes. Then we, then we, we're glad. Out of the overflow that God has given us to, to increase that joy by pouring it out on some 
needy person. Now that's the essence of my horizontal hedonism. We always want to increase our joy. And giving does increase joy. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And therefore, it is not wrong to be motivated by a desire for happiness, even on the horizontal level. It's okay to see that person on the side of the road and say, if I pull over there and help them, I'll be happy. Well, when I discovered that, that was a great liberation, too, and a great incentive to do good. Because I didn't think the deeds were destroyed anymore by the joy that came from them. I can remember, it still happens today at Bethel. I can remember year after year, sitting there in Bethel Chapel, and it would be Christian service time. And people would stand up to, to tell about their Christian service experience in the old folks' home. I remember those. And uh, they would say things like this. I can't remember the way. But they would say, well, I believe that I was able to help some of these people. And, and I... Sorry I'm saying this, but I too enjoyed the semester's work. I'm sorry I have to admit it. I know it destroys the value of everything I do. There is a lot of that in testimonies that in Bethel Chapel. I'm sorry to say that this whole semester's work brought me pleasure in doing work for the Lord. And I just want to stand up and say, well, you could have apologizing for that. You're a good person. That's a sign of your sanctification. <laughs> a sanctified person delights to do right. An unsanctified person has to grit his teeth to do right. All of us are on the road to heaven and nobody will act contrary to any emotions in heaven. Total hedonism. You will only do what makes you happy in heaven. You will not do anything that makes you unhappy in heaven. And sanctification is simply becoming heavenly minded. Does that make sense? There's another thing. This can relate to sex. Uh, if I can. I used to think that virtue. A virtuous person was a person who overcame the strongest inclination to evil. You had a really strong inclination to evil, and you overcame it. You were powerful and therefore virtuous. And the person who didn't have a very strong inclination to evil didn't have to overcome as much, and therefore didn't have as much moral backbone and therefore wasn't as virtuous. See what the implication of that is? In order to be more virtuous, you have to have more evil inclination. And it just it hit me, I forget when it, it sunk in, that virtue is having our inclination so changed that it's easy to do good. It takes no effort. Now, none of us is there. But that's the goal, isn't it? The goal is to become the kind of person for whom it is no sweat to do right. Here's a 
I got a letter. You remember the sermon I preached? Uh, what was it? Um, it's my pleasure. Christian hedonism and humility. I got a letter from somebody. Where is that letter? Bruce Reichenbach teaches philosophy at Augsburg. He was there that morning, and he didn't like it. And he wrote me a long letter and rapped if I can't find it. Because I wrote him a long response, too. Try to convince him. It was true, nevertheless. Oh, there it is. Augsburg College, missionary. Let me read you part of what he said. I don't think he'd mind this. Your position reduces morality to a concern for advantage. I ought to do such and such because it will bring me certain things or have advantageous consequences. But are the virtues of kindness, love, justice, and humility justifiable only in terms of what they produce? Quote D.Z. Phillips, who puts it as well as anyone, when we are confronted with two men, one of whom loves justice, kindness, and generosity, without thought of what they bring, while the other thinks only of what they bring, do we not want to say different things about them? Do we not want to say that only one of them loves justice, while the other loves, while the others love is a mere pretense, a facade. That this is so is shown by the fact that when the situation changes, when it no longer pays to be good, the man who pursued the virtues only for external reasons soon gives up his love of virtue. But notice, even if the change in situation never comes about, even if it always remains the case that it pays to be good, the difference between the two men remains unaltered for what determines that difference is the relation within which they stand to the pursuit of virtue, in quote from D.B. Phillips. In reducing moral considerations to, consider, to actions of advantage, we have in effect falsified the character of moral considerations. What is commended is no longer morality itself or the virtues themselves, but the advantage one can get from them. We are asked to do good because of what we get from it. But is it not the contention of morality that we should do good because it is good? Here's what I wrote back, part of it. There are some significant disagreements between us exegetically and ethically. You ask, is it not the contention of morality that we should do good because it is good? You answer... We should do good and perform virtuously, I suggest, because it is good and virtuous. That God will bless it and cause us to be happy is a consequence of it, but not the motive for doing it. That's Emmanuel Kant, I think. My answer to your question is to ask, whose morality? Act, according to Emmanuel Kant's morality, the answer is yes. According to the biblical morality, the answer, I think, must be no. Morality is not jeopardized by being motivated by self-interest. The Bible is replete with promises and threats which are not appended carefully as non-motivational results. 
which we had best keep out of our view, but which clearly and boldly and hedonistically aim to motivate our behavior. What sets off biblical morality from worldly hedonism is not that biblical morality is disinterested, but that it is interested in vastly greater things. Let's take only one book, the Gospel of Luke, and see if your contention that God's intention to bless virtue and make virtue happy should not motivate our virtuous acts. Now, i got a whole slew of texts here. I don't think I'll read them all, but just one or two. Luke 6.35 Love your enemies and do good and win, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. I would say that Jesus either disagrees with your view of morality or he has made it psychologically impossible for us to love morally. Four, if he agreed with you, the promise of reward for lending freely must not motivate such lending, then his mentioning the reward is an insuperable stumbling block to morality. But only a philosophical predisposition, probably stemming from Kant, would deny that here Jesus is inducing us to love by means of a promised reward. The distinction which you and D.Z. Phillips did not make is between loving for material rewards, that's what Reichenbach's letter kept sounding like he thought I thought, between loving for material rewards and loving for holy, immaterial rewards, H-O-L-Y. Luke 6.35 clearly makes this distinction. Don't lend with a view to material aggrandizement. Lend with a view to the joy God gives to free lovers. It is not fair when you and Philip's lump me and Jesus together with mercenary materialists. To confirm this interpretation of Luke 6.35, look at 14.12 to 14. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your kinsmen or rich neighbors, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. See, don't go for that. <coughs> but when you give a feast, invite the poor, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, don't seek worldly advantage. Seek spiritual, heavenly benefits. And I have lots of other texts there, too. But... Time is almost up, and maybe you should have a chance to ask one more question. Huh? You're saying that we should love others. Jonathan Edwards wrestled with that text and has a great paragraph on it in his sermon, Charity and Its Fruits. And uh, basically he says the same thing Jesus does here. Love seeks not its own means love doesn't seek uh, any other reward than the joy of loving and the joy of being with the God whose character is like that. 
In other words, what Paul was saying when he said love seeks not its own is um, you're not loving when you marry a woman for her money. You're not loving when you help clean the church to gain brownie points with the pastor. You're not loving when you uh, decide to speak at a college retreat in order to Um, get praise from people. That's not loving. Because all of those rewards are not organically connected to the act of love. I have a paragraph on that. It might help you grasp my position if I point out here that I think it is ethically crucial that the reward we anticipate at the resurrection be organically related to the beauty of the act we are performing. It is bad when Christians think of heaven materialistically, when they make of it merely a glorified secular city to gratify their temporally suppressed desires. The reward is the Lord himself in all his beautiful holiness. Therefore, when a person does justice and kindness, with a view to enjoying fellowship with the just and the kind Jesus, it would be a contradiction to say he does not love justice and kindness. He does. He regards them as beautiful ways of acting, but not without reference to their relation to the future and to the Lord who creates the future. It seems to me essentially godless to define virtue by some intrinsic thing. Once the God of promise and warning, the God who rules all history, and is always designing and moving toward a goal. Once that God is brought in, virtue becomes virtuous as it promotes good ends. And when the Lord constantly reminds me that my good end is part of the goal of virtue, I think I would be wrong not to make this my motive, that is my good, my goal, my happiness. So, uh, love seeks not its own means love seeks not its own material advantage through another person. Love does seek its own, in the sense that it seeks its own happiness in the act of loving. Provided it is love that brings us joy. And being with the Lord who is love, then it's not a contradiction of First Corinthians 13. Right. Sure not wrong to want to be rid of it. I'm trying to think if that's a contradiction right there. Didn't you have that as icing on the cake? <laughs> In other words, uh, well, that's, well, that's, that's the definition of a lot of, you know, I think a lot of people are pushing to love like I've said as an amen to that. Benefits for me. I mean, who wants to go to heaven if there's no benefit? Uh, now, but your, your question, you see, I, I've been stressing delight in the Lord because of his beauty and glory. And, and you're raising the question, what about my health? Now, and I'm trying to figure out a way to, to, uh, to fit that in without it being a contradiction to 
a non-material or uh, a, a God-oriented. <laughs> it, it's written right here. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. So it is not wrong to expect that. Now, um, would it not, however, be wrong if that was the only reason you wanted to go to heaven? In other words, if Jesus didn't matter, if you had to choose between a headache for eternity without Jesus, no. Is that what I want to say? With Jesus. And without a headache, without Jesus, which would you choose? That might be. But that's a lousy question to ask. I don't like those kinds of questions because they, they, they force on us an unreal possibility. I think I would tie the two together like this. The Jesus we love, and one of the reasons we love him is because he's Lord, and he's good, and he's loving. Which means he controls this world, and when he finishes his loving purposes with it, pain's got to go for his people. That's one of the reasons we love him. So maybe to want to be rid of a headache and want to love this Lord and be with him really do come together. And they're not two completely separate desires in the long run. Because you really, how could you love a Lord who, when he consummated his whole purpose, finished everything, did away with his enemies, said to you, I'm done, but you're still going to have those migraines for eternity. You can't just scratch your head and say, but, but you're not done yet. What, what sort of a Lord are you that it's got to go on forever? We can understand that you use pain for a time to teach us something, but that it should go on forever would contradict your goodness. And therefore, to love God and want to be with him and to want to be rid of the headache really are two different goals, but the same of all of one piece. I think we better stop. The question we'll pose in the morning is, uh, why did God create sexual pleasure? Now, this is this fits right in, because if all this talk about delighting in God is where it's at for the Christian hedonist, why in the world should he create such a competitor as, <laughs> as sexual desire? That's what we'll try to answer first off tomorrow.